My Punishment Was to Keep What I Stole by Haku Nomiya. Each morning when I wake up, I open the chest where I keep my son. I stroke his small skull and murmur, Good morning, although I know he can no longer hear me. I hope he doesn't think I abandoned him. I hope he knows I never will. You see, when my son died of a fever, I refused to let him go. He was only a baby, and all that I had left. So I turned to the stories my own mother had told me, the rituals and legends I learned in childhood. You see, the rules of bringing someone back from the underworld seemed so easy. I scoffed at the stories of those who failed, sure that my willpower would be stronger than theirs. I forced my way through the fields of the night, and I found my son's faint, pale soul. I guided it all the way back to his body, never looking back once. When I saw my son open his eyes again and smile at me, I thought I had made the right choice. He laughed, he ran, he played just as he did before. I even believed I could pretend nothing had happened. Then a few days later, I saw the rot creeping up his skin. At that moment, I realized my mistake. I hadn't restored my son to life. I had only brought his soul back to his corpse. I tried to comfort him as his body swelled and decayed. He welled day and night in fear as his flesh fell from his bones. Only when his throat rotted away did he stop screaming. I attempted to return him to the underworld, to return my son's soul, but the way would not open to me again. You see, I cheated death, and my punishment was to keep what I stole. When his ligaments finally broke down, I gathered his bones and placed them in the antique chest I inherited from my mother. Only the best would do for my son. Sometimes my son's bones lie still inside the chest for hours, even days, and I dare to hope that his soul found its way back to where it belongs. But sooner or later, his bones always begin to rattle again, and I know he's still alive. Once, all I wanted was to have my son here with me, but now I would give anything for him to die. He's talking and I'm not and I'm just... <sighs> <laughs> 
And then I'm talking. <laughs> no, but wait, wait! I have something for him. Boom! You get shot down. Now you're just fucking me, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids. The Weird History and Eerie Tales podcast. Concentrating on the dude. Shit's looking good. Wow. <laughs> FY, there's nothing wrong with my I don't celebrate Halloween when the trick-or-treaters come out and start prowling my street. I make sure to keep my front porch light off and pull the shades down. If someone rings my doorbell, despite all my precautions, I hide in the bedroom and pray that they don't ring it again. There's always a fear that maybe it's not a child in a Ninja Turtle mask or wearing a sheet over their head. Maybe. Just maybe. It's Granny Clark. Granny Clark is the reason I stopped celebrating Halloween. Abigail Clark, known to everyone in Hollisfield as Granny Clark, was the kindest, sweetest old lady in existence. She lived in a little greenhouse at the top of Tamarack Lane, one that bordered a broad expanse of forest. She lived there as long as anyone could remember. Someone once told me she was over 100 years old, and nobody within earshot challenged the claim. I absolutely believed them. Juniper Street, the street I lived on, just happened to touch that same forest as Granny Clark's. There was a path that wound through the woods all the way up the hill to her driveway. Many an afternoon was spent playing in those woods, climbing trees, building forts out of sticks, or running down that winding path from Granny Clark's driveway to the end of Juniper Street, pretending wolves were biting at my heels. I always felt somewhat unnerved being around Granny Clark. Maybe it was the way she walked, all hunched over, her arms bent at the elbow like a tyrannosaurus. Maybe it was her shock white hair that stuck out in all directions. Or maybe it was the way I could see her blood vessels clear as day through her translucent, liver-spotted skin, and the way her fingers seemed unnaturally long and thin. My mother took me to see her once when I was seven. They were coordinating together on an arts and crafts table at the local fair. I remember that her little green house smelled like lavender and mothballs, and the rooms were lined with photos of children. Some of the photos weren't black and white, or faded like they had been taken many years ago. Are these all, all your kids? I asked Granny Clark. She smiled and looked around the room. These are all my lovely babies. Afterward, as my mother and I walked down the path to Juniper Street hand in hand, I told her how amazing I thought it was that one person could have so many children. She just laughed at me. They aren't really her kids, she said. Mrs. Clark doesn't have any children of her own. Those were photos of other people's kids. Why does she have photos of other people's kids? I asked. Because her parents gave them to her. Did you give her my photo? Not yet. I looked up at my mother with concern. Please don't, 
She frowned, but said nothing the rest of the walk home. Five years later, I got permission to go trick-or-treating with my friend Spencer on Halloween. Spencer lived on Roseman Avenue, 8th Street, which connected with a number of others, including Tamarack Lane. The neighborhoods over and around Roseman were considered the best area for trick-or-treating in town, far superior to the neighborhood down around my neck of the woods. Together, we convinced both our parents that we were old enough to go on our own. What I didn't know at the time was that Spencer had other plans. When my dad dropped me off at Spencer's doorstep in my pirate costume, complete with eye patch, black marker goatee, and a stuffed parrot velcroed to my shoulder, Spencer was already outside sitting on the front stoop. He was going as either a zombie or an accident victim. I never really asked. His clothes were all torn and covered in stage blood. He'd used some sort of wax to create open sores on his arms and face. I was genuinely impressed with the amount of work he'd put into making himself look grotesque. Once my father's car rolled out of sight, Spencer grabbed me by the arm and hauled me around the side of his house to the garage. Listen, he said. You have to help me pull something off. It better not be your pants. <laughs> he gave me a serious look. Josh dared me to prank old Granny Clark. Josh Gurry was a kid in our grade who Spencer had a habit of butting heads with. They had a rivalry ever since Spencer pinned Josh in her minute during gym class wrestling. Since then, Josh always tried to make Spencer look weak in front of the other kids our age, and Spencer refused to ignore it whenever he did, probably as a matter of pride. Granny Clark? I don't like the idea of doing anything to anyone, let alone an elderly person. Spencer saw the concern in my eye. We're not gonna do anything serious. Well, what were you planning? It's simple. Spencer smiled. You distract her by treating at the front door. Just keep her talking and I'm going to go into the back. No way! I'm not going to be an accomplice to breaking and entering. It's not breaking in. She always leaves her back door unlocked. That seemed like an odd thing to know. Anyway, I'll go in the back, sneak upstairs, and toilet paper her entire bedroom. As if to prove the legitimacy of his plan, Spencer pulled a large roll of bathroom tissue out of his trick-or-treat bag. What will that prove to Josh? That he can TP some half-blind old lady's house? Are you gonna help me or not? Because you can always walk home if you want. We stared at each other through our makeup effects for a few moments before I sighed and gave in. But promise me we'll do a bit of trick-or-treating too. Otherwise, my parents would know we were up to something. Oh, of course. I want candy too. Jeez. And with that, we set out. Trying not to seem obvious, we meandered around the neighborhood for a half hour. Letting the sun set and waiting for most of the other trick-or-treaters to finish going down Tamarack Lane. You know, trying to reduce the chances of someone spotting us. I got some candy to get started on my alibi in case I was questioned later as to my involvement in scaring an old lady to death. My stomach was very unhappy with me and made it known by clenching up like a fist. I was hot in my pirate costume, but my whole body shook with anxiety. Finally, when the streetlights had turned on and all the very small goblins and fairies were carted off back to their homes, 
Spencer nudged me in the ribs and nodded silently in the direction of the forest. I nodded back and we made a beeline for Tamarack Lane, trying to make small talk to continue looking inconspicuous. When we got to the end of Tamarack Lane, Spencer threw his arm out, stopping me in my tracks. We both stood looking at the little green house at the top of the hill. The front porch light was off. Shit! Spencer hissed. Whoop, she's in bed. Abort mission. I started to turn when Spencer grabbed my arm. Wait, I think I see her moving about in the kitchen. There was someone moving around in the kitchen. I couldn't make out who, just a silhouette pacing around the back of the house. Right near the door, Spencer was planning to sneak in through. Spencer reached into his trick-or-treat bag, fumbling around for a minute before pulling something out and shoving it into my chest. Here, take this. I took what he handed me and looked down at it. A walkie-talkie? Are you serious? Stick it in your candy bag, then go ring the doorbell. And if you can't keep her busy, just reach in and click the button on the front twice. I'll hear it and bail. Dude, the porch light is off. Spencer looked at me and I saw the desperation in his eyes. He had to prove himself to Josh in this stupid, juvenile, ridiculous way. And if I didn't help him, he was probably going to do something even dumber. Or worse yet, in his mind, go back to school and confess to Josh that he didn't do it. I sighed and dropped the walkie-talkie into my bag. Just go and get it done quick. Granny Clark gives me the creeps. Spencer ducked down low and crept off into the trees and bushes by the side of the road. He was out of my sight in an instant, though I heard him shuffling around, snapping twigs and cursing as he stumbled through the dark. Once he was gone, I took a deep breath and looked up at the little greenhouse. It seemed bigger and a darker shade of green than it had before, though I knew it was more my mind playing tricks on me than anything real. Through the window, the silhouette of Abigail, Granny Clark, shuffled about in her kitchen, occasionally disappearing out of sight around the corner only to shuffle past in the opposite direction a moment later. I ascended the front porch steps, my right hand sliding into the candy bag to feel the walkie-talkie and make sure it was face-up for easy access to the emergency button on the front. My pirate makeup was probably starting to run down my face due to the sudden sweat I'd built up on my forehead. The stuffed paired on my shoulder felt like it was getting heavier. Somewhere deep inside me, a little voice whispered, I don't want to be here. Over and over and over again. I felt certain I was going to hurl at any second. I hesitated to push the doorbell button, trembling in fear. My finger hovered there in front of it for a solid minute. Then the walkie-talkie in my back squawked once, loudly, and I clutched my chest as my heart lurched. Okay, okay. I snarled quietly at Spencer through gritted teeth, knowing he was sending me a signal. I rang the doorbell. The sound of busy work inside of the house stopped. I hadn't really been paying attention to the banging and thumping going on inside, but when silence settled over the house, I became horribly aware of the noises that had been going on as I approached. A sliding sound, followed by another thump, then a louder thump. Should I ring the bell again? I thought. But footsteps answered my question. 
heavy, slow footsteps coming to the front door. The sound of their approach served to fill my tankard of dread even further. There was a hesitation in them, like Granny Clark wasn't sure what to do, or maybe she was waiting to see if I'd leave. Please don't make me ring the bell again. The porch light came on, and I froze. It was like being cast suddenly in a spotlight. There I was, for all to see. Through the small, semicircular window in the door, I caught a brief glimpse of someone looking out to see who had rung the bell. I couldn't make out her eyes, just her eyebrows in the darkness. Then the door creaked open, and I was face to face with Abigail Clark. She looked haggard. Her eyes were sunken and hidden in shadow. Her features were even more pale than usual, and her whole face seemed to hang off her skull. She had pulled a shawl over her head, hiding most of her shock white hair. I could only see a few strands hanging down in her face. I swallowed the lump burning in my parched throat. I could barely squeak out the words, trick or treat. Granny Clark didn't say a word. She just stood there, not moving, staring at me with her dark eyes and that sickly looking face. Out of the corner of my eye, I caught a glimpse of movement behind her in the kitchen and knew Spencer had entered the house. I needed to fill the silence or he'd be busted for sure. I coughed loudly, then blinked several times trying to think of something to say. Miss Clark? I stammered. I'm sorry if we... If I woke you. Oh shit, I said we. My mother insisted I stop by and say hello while I'm out trick-or-treating tonight, and I almost forgot. I knew she'd be disappointed if I went home and told her I, I hadn't paid you a visit. So I was hoping that despite your light being off, you'd... Granny Clark opened the door further, stepping halfway out onto the porch. As she did so, I noted the heavy brown coat she wore. I also noticed a pair of thick gloves on her hands. She seemed to straighten and turn. She seemed to straighten and turn, reaching behind the door jamb for what I assumed was a bowl of candy. Uh, are you having trouble with the heating in your house, Miss Clark? I could hear myself, and it sounded like I was going to cry. One gloved hand beckoned me closer. Her breathing sounded labored and ragged. Every exhalation gurgling like a diver using a snorkel. The expression on her face never changed. There was no sign of the joy or excitement I had seen every time I'd visited her in the past. She seemed like an entirely different woman and I felt sensations of discomfort and fear battling each other in my gut. I stepped closer, holding my bag out, when a heavy thump came from the back of the house, followed quickly by a clatter of dishes shattered on the floor. Granny Clark and I both stiffened. Aw, oh, shit, I thought. Granny Clark turned her head in the direction of the kitchen, where Spencer seemed determined to make as much noise as he possibly could. It sounded like he had started having a seizure back there and was flopping around on the kitchen tiles, slapping everything in sight. Panic lurched out of the pit of my stomach, my mind blanked with a single word, GO! flashing like a neon sign in the center of my brain. And without another word, I turned away to make a hasty retreat. 
Granny Clark's heavily gloved hand clamped down around my wrist. For being over a hundred years old, she had a grip like a lumberjack. She squeezed so tight that my legs turned to gelatin, dropping me to my knees. My goodie bag hit the ground with a loud clatter as I grabbed out of her hand, crying out in pain. Miss Clark, you're hurting me. Her other hand behind the door jam appeared, holding not a bowl but a large box cutter. She extended the blade, looking at me with the same emotionless expression, and pulled me closer to her. The whole moment was so surreal that I just knelt there on the porch as she dragged me toward her, trying to understand what was happening. Why was she holding a box cutter? Where was the candy? What was going on? It was Spencer who saved me. His voice echoed at once screaming distantly from the kitchen while also crackling over the airwaves and coming out of the bag on my feet. RUN! Granny Clark turned again in the direction of the kitchen as she caught sight of Spencer dashing past, throwing open the back door and disappearing into the backyard. In doing so, her grip loosened on my wrist ever so slightly, just enough for me to twist my arm and squeeze through her fingers. She turned back to me, grasping at me with her free hand while the other one holding the box cutter, threateningly. Even then, kneeling on the porch, watching the kindest old woman in town come at me, the blade of the box cutter glinting from the streetlights, I tried to rationalize the situation. This wasn't the Granny Clark I knew. I looked up at her, sobbing in panic and trying to find the words to calm her. Please, I scrambled back a foot. It was just a joke. I'm sorry. The left half of Granny Clark's face seemed to sag like it was melting. Her eye looked funny, droopy. The guttural breathing suddenly sounded more like a snarl, feral and angry. She brought the blade down and I instinctively raised my hands to protect myself, screaming in pain as I felt its edge slice through the fabric of my costume and open the flesh of my arm. I didn't give her a second chance. My legs that had initially surrendered to gravity now felt the intense burn of adrenaline pumping through them. Tucking into myself, I rolled backward trying to gain my footing only end up tumbling down the porch steps instead. White hot pain shot up my left side and I screamed again, but I refused to pause. I was too driven by blind panic. I got to my feet in a hurry as the old woman on the porch straightened up, towering over me like a giant. She tromped toward the steps with a frightening determination. Spencer, eyes wide with terror, came around the corner of the house at full tilt. He surveyed the scenario unfolding on the front porch, and the look of confusion washed over him for a second before he grabbed me by the arm and spun me around. Make for the woods! And with that, he was off like a shot, sprinting at the end of the driveway where the forest began. I ran hot on his heels, my arm and my head both throbbing. Dizziness and nausea swept over me and I tripped over my feet, colliding with the side of Granny Clark's car and pausing for the briefest of moments to vomit down the side of it. How had everything gone so wrong? Before I could collect my thoughts, I heard the heavy thud of boots and looking back, saw Granny Clark's hulking form lurching toward me. Silhouetted by street lamps in her heavy coat with the shawl over her head, 
She looked massive, like a lumbering horror, hell-bent on my destruction. Nobody's going to believe this. Even I don't believe it. And I'm seeing it, I thought to myself over and over. I shook it off and bolted for the tree line. I knew that if I could just make it to Juniper Street, I'd be safe. The trail was a winding quarter mile, but it was all downhill, and I had enough terror-based energy pumping through my veins to keep me going. I'd run that path for years and knew every gnarled route that might trip me up, every change in the angle of the descent, every curve to avoid a tree in the dark. Just get home. The moon was out and filtered through the branches, making beams in the dust kicked up by Spencer before me. It highlighted the path and cast the forest in a creepy blue hue. Everything around me seemed to glow. If I hadn't been running for my life, I might have stopped to take it in. The adrenaline coursing through me made time slow to a crawl. Every footfall felt like I was slogging through thick mud. I'd never been as perfectly attuned to my senses as I was sprinting through the forest that Halloween. I could hear everything around me. My breath coming out slow and focused, my heart thumping in my ears, the snapping of branches further down the path as Spencer, less familiar with the way, ran ahead, and the heavy clumping of someone coming down the trail behind me. I turned to look. I did it, knowing all the stories of people being told not to look back, and all the bad things that happened to them when they did. I did it. Not wanting to really see what it was, because I knew. I did it, and all my hopes of making a home disappeared in a flurry of wings like a flock of startled pigeons. Granny Clark was right behind me, thundering down the trail like a rampaging elephant. She was a good 20 paces back, but I could see her perfectly in every silver of moonlight we both ran through. The most frightening thing about her was the look on her face. It wasn't one of anger or even of determination. In fact, there was no expression whatsoever. Her eyes were dead. Her mouth seemed to hang open. The left half of her face still drooping down like melting candle wax. And then the wind whipped her shawl off and her face went with it. It just slid off as easily as a Halloween mask, disappearing somewhere on the trail behind her as she closed in on me, as determined and frightening as ever. Where her face had been, there was blood, just blood everywhere. But I could finally see her eyes through it all, and they stared at me with a terrible rage and madness like I had never seen before. I thought I was going insane. She bore down on me, the sight of her hate-filled, bloody face burning forever into my mind. Her hands reached out, trying to grab me and guide me to hell. But all I could focus on was that scarlet face. The true fury within her finally revealed. There was a sharp turn in the path, and I slowed for only a fraction of a second to make it. 
Granny Clark was not as familiar with the trail, her momentum driving her straight on. Her fingers licked past the back of my head and wrapped around the stuffed parrot on my shoulder. She tore it off as she barreled headlong into the trees behind me, crashing to a stop with violent abruptness. She can have the parrot, I thought. When I burst out of the woods and onto the tarmac of Juniper Street, I was moving like all hell was on my heels. Ahead, I saw Spencer slowing down, trying to catch his breath as he reached the driveway to my house. Somewhere along the way, he had lost his own trick-or-treat bag, and most of his makeup had run off. Don't stop! I screamed at him. He turned, seeing me hurtling down the road and hurried up to the front door, banging on it and shouting. I dashed up the front sidewalk, shoving him aside and throwing my shoulder into the door, having just enough sense to turn the knob and open it. We fell over each other on the landing, and Spencer kicked trying to close the door behind him. I climbed over him and slammed it shut before deadbolting it and leaning my full weight against it. I broke down into tears while clutching my arm. Jesus Christ! Spencer yelled. We both started shouting over each other, neither one listening to the other until my mom and dad, hearing the commotion, ran in from the living room to find us yelling and bloody. They looked us over with mild annoyance until my mom saw my shirt soaked red with blood and her eyes bugged out. What the hell happened? She yelled at us. I sobbed. My mind retraced everything that I had just witnessed. Her, her face. They took her face. It came right off. Both my parents looked equal parts concerned and utterly perplexed. I could tell they thought we had just spooked ourselves and gotten hurt running away. I waved my hands at Spencer to silence him, then told them everything. As my story unfolded, their expressions wavered between doubt, anger, and concern. Honestly, telling them that Granny Clark attacked me with a knife and then chased me through the woods before her face peeled off, I had a hard time believing it myself. When I finished, Spencer told his side. When I went in through the back door, I could see Will and what I thought was Granny Clark at the front door. I tried to keep around to the stores, but I tripped over a pair of legs. Mrs. Clark's legs. She was lying in the food pantry. I had never seen Spencer cry before, but his eyes welled up with tears as he continued. Her face was missing. I could see all the stuff underneath. That pulled it all right off. Just like peeling an orange. They took her face. My mom disappeared into the kitchen where I could hear her using the phone to call the police. My father stood there, shaking his head in disbelief at us. Spencer and I locked eyes. That wasn't her, Spencer's voice cracked. I realized it wasn't her on the porch and I told you to run. I'm so sorry. I hugged him, forgetting the pain in my arm for a moment as he balled his fists up in my shirt and buried his face in my chest, adding his tears to the blood and sweat I was thoroughly soaked in. I'm so sorry. When the police got to Abigail Clark's house, 
They found her just as Spencer had described. Her throat had been slit, and all the flesh on her face had been removed. In the woods, they found the remains of her face, cut from ear to ear and worn like a mask. They also found my stuffed parrot lying in the leaves by a blood-covered tree at the turn that had saved me. One of the branches on the tree was snapped and dripping with the blood. Even more was found where the path opened onto Juniper Street. But after that, the trail went cold. They found the killer a day later, an unemployed carpenter from two towns over with a history of violence. He checked into the hospital with a gouged out eye, claiming he had accidentally impaled himself while hanging a picture. Apparently his blood work came back with two different types on him, one of which was identified as Abigail Clark's. Thankfully, he confessed, saving the police from having to ask Spencer or I if we could identify him. Neither of us would have been able to, and neither of us wanted to ever see him again. I do see him though, regularly, whenever the scar on my arm flares up and my dreams turn to running down that moonlit trail in the woods with him just ten steps behind me. Of course, the face I see isn't his, it's always Granny Clark's face, devoid of emotion, yet every step filled with anger, determined to catch me and put me in the ground. Granny Clark, the most beloved person Hollisfield has ever known, is the monster that haunts my worst nightmares. Creepy Pasta presents Don't Answer the Door at 9 p.m. on Halloween, written by Hayes. It was Halloween night. My parents had just left with my little brother to go to a party at the middle school. I didn't go because I was in the 11th grade and I just wanted to spend the day drowning from essays and tests. So I wasn't in the mood to spend my night watching kids scream in terror from people in rubber masks and styrofoam skeletons. Once they left, I hopped on the couch and scrolled through the horror channels. I eventually found a movie that seemed interesting was called The Not-So-Good Dead, directed by Sam Imey. I put on the bright orange candy bowl on the porch and started to watch the movie. But I couldn't focus. I was too worried about my family. You see, Halloween was never my favorite holiday. Even trick-or-treating never piqued my interest, not even as a kid. Especially with all the disappearances happening in the city, like the Halloween before. Five teenagers and an entire family went missing. Two weeks later, the police found the body of a missing teenager. Well, if you can even call it a body. The body was missing its head, and they were also missing their intestines. The police say it was most likely an animal, like a bear or a wolf, that came down from the mountains and caught them on their way home. The other teenagers and the missing family were still not found to this day, but the loved ones of the missing have accepted that they are gone and that they're never coming back. As I was stuck in the train of thought, the grandfather clock my dad kept struck nine. I didn't think much of it until I realized that my family should have been back hours ago 
my mind started to assume the worst had happened. I sprung up from the couch and raced to my cell phone, but before I could reach it, I heard a, knock, a hard knock on the front door. No kid should have been out at this time, so why was someone knocking on the door? If it was my dad or my mom, they would have the house key so they don't need to knock. So it must have been some kids ding dong ditching houses. That was my thought until there was a second set of knocks. I ignored all of my instincts and decided to call my dad. With a dial of the first three numbers, there was a loud bang on the door. I continued to dial until loud, rapid banging started to hit the door, and I frantically dialed the rest of the numbers. I pressed call, and what I heard would made my blood run cold. I held the phone to my ear. No service. As I removed the phone from my ear, I noticed that the banging had stopped. I turned to look at the door and froze. Looking at me from the mail slot of the front door were glassy white eyes. When our eyes locked, the mail slot closed, making a loud clank noise that echoed through the house. I then heard footsteps walk away from the door into the distance. But I could still feel its ominous presence. And I thought it was over. Then the power of the house was cut off. My reaction was to kneel and keep quiet. That was probably just seconds, but it felt like hours in darkness of an empty house. When I got a hold of my nerves, I slowly and scarcely stood up. I then collected the strength that I had left and said, Who's there? When I finished the question, footsteps rushed to the door and they started banging kicking and even scratching at the door and whatever it was it wasn't going to stop until it got me that was clear i started to take a step back and let out a loud screeching noise that was a mix of a bat and a deer no human being could have made a noise as terrifying as that i thought the door started to crack and bend from the force of the creature i didn't know what to do but i didn't have time to decide the door broke off the hinges, falling to the ground, and making a loud sound of wood hitting tile. I ran into the kitchen to arm myself. I grabbed a knife from the drying rack and I turned around to see what had broken down the front door. Nothing. There was nothing there. Just a broken door. But that wasn't the part that scared me. What scared me was past the door. There was nothing, no light, to the houses, not even the street. It was just a thick fog that swallowed my home. There was then a sound from above my head, a scraping sound, claws ripping up the drywall of the ceiling. I didn't need to look up because a creature dropped in front of me, and it wasn't human. Its flesh was falling off the bone. Its arms were so long that they were touching the floor, and a horrid smell of roadkill filled my nose. As I struggled not to vomit at the sight, I noticed it wasn't looking at me. It was facing up and looking at the freshly made claw marks in the ceiling, and smiling with genuine joy. It then made a sound that still haunts my soul to this day. It was a whining sound, almost like an animal, but at the same time, not even close.
I tried to take a step back, but with the creak of the floorboard, the creature snapped its neck downward to look at me, and I was caught off guard and I fell back. When I hit the ground, the noise stopped and I looked up. Now I could see its face. Its skull was wrapped in rotting flesh and dark veins. I vomited from the mixture of sight and smell. The creature then let out a cackle, almost like a hyena as if it's found enjoyment from seeing me in that state. Once I was done being sick, I dashed the stairs, but before I could make it to the first step, the creature, with what felt like a truck, slapped me with the back of its skinny and rotted hand. I was sent flying to the other side of the kitchen, and with no doubt, I knew that my arm was broken. I looked to my right and saw the knife. With the creature slowly walking up to me, I grabbed the knife with my non-broken arm. I pointed the knife towards the creature, ready for the end. I closed my eyes, accepting my fate, and counting my last breaths. And then hear the creature smelling the air. Whatever scent the creature caught was making it salivate. The creature then looked towards the cabinet and rested with its animalistic movements. With both hands, the creature ripped the cabinet door off its hinges. Cereals and snacks flew across the kitchen. And the creature then pulls out an old bag of candy corn that no one ate. And then started walking towards the front broken door. Before the creature makes it to the door, it stops and looks at the puddle of vomit on the floor and starts playing with it. And then picks up a piece of the chocolate from the puddle, looks at it, and says it in my own but demonic voice. Bad candy. And then rushes out the door into the fog. The moment that creature left the entire house shook. I stumbled to look out of the window to see that the fog had dissipated. My legs finally gave out and I collapsed to the floor. While I was fighting to stay awake, my legs finally gave out and I collapsed to the floor. While I was fighting to stay awake, I heard the shattering of a window. It was my newly widowed neighbor. I could hear his screams and him begging for his life. I then heard the slashing and ripping of flesh, along with the screams of agony. I then blacked out from the exhaustion. I was then woken up by the frantic calling of my dad. Are you okay? I couldn't see well, but I could make out the tears in my dad's eyes and the silhouette of my mom and brother also crying as well. And they woke up in the hospital with a cast and bandages on my ribs. I still had the screams of my neighbor ringing in my ears. The police ended up asking my family questions. My family chalked it up to a robbery gone wrong. I also said it was a robbery because no one was going to believe me anyways. But I know exactly what happened that night. Afterward, everything seems to be back to normal, but I was still having nightmares every week. I eventually told them about that night but they just told me that I was watching too many scary movies. A couple weeks later, they found my neighbor's body. It was like the teenagers that were missing, but this time, in place of its intestines, was candy corn. A new family moved into his house a month later. Hopefully, they won't have to ever experience the horror that I did on Halloween. I just wish I could have done more to help him.
This story is from Reddit via BuzzFeed. It's the story of a father putting his young son to bed. So it's uh, late at night. Ah, it's time to tuck in my son to bed. I go upstairs. I enter his room. He's there smiling, waiting for me. So I begin tucking him into bed. And he tells me, Daddy, check for monsters under my bed. <laughs> so I look underneath for his amusement and see him. Another him. Under the bed. Staring back at me, quivering and whispering. Daddy, there's somebody on my bed. Creepypasta presents why they had to change Halloween Horror Night's name. In the first year of Halloween Horror Nights, an incident occurred which caused the structure of the entire event to be altered and for the name to be changed from Fright Nights to Halloween Horror Nights. And I was there that night that it happened. It was turning out to be a fairly empty night at the park. If you have ever been to Halloween Horror Nights nowadays, you know that it is incredibly packed and there are organized scare zones. However, that's not how it used to be. In its first years, it was not all that popular of an event, and yet there was no designated scare zones throughout the park. That meant that anywhere you were a scare actor could be there hiding behind a bush or popping out from behind a tree. It was truly a terrifying experience. It was the first year of the event and I had been dragged in by my sister and mom who were much bigger horror fans than me at the time. They were excited that I had just barely reached the age limit of 13 and could actually go into the event with them. I had done spook houses and stuff before but never anything quite like this magnitude. They kept warning me to stay by their side because no one was really sure what the event was going to be like. They teased me that they didn't want to get eaten by a ghoul or something stupid like that, which actually just annoyed me. I remember when we were walking around the park before the event had started, I saw creepy marionette puppets in the bushes by the main lake in broad daylight an hour before the scare actors were even supposed to start coming out. This was weird because I didn't think that that was allowed even back in those early days. However, I just thought maybe he was heading to the break room or something. Then he turned and start stared at me. He used one hand to pick the other one up like he was using a marionette string and pointed his fingers at my shirt. I didn't know what that was about, but I thought it was probably because I had a fuzzy bear on my shirt. Either way, we kept walking toward the other side of the park. We decided to go to Kong ride first, which I loved. I remember I had been afraid of it on previous visits, but now I was taking it like a champ. And once I was done with all that, it really got me ready to go out into the park to see how much more I could really handle. As we stepped out of the building and into the eerie dark, empty streets of the New York area, the fear finally settled in. 
I could hear the grungy voice of Beetlejuice laughing manically from the graveyard in the distance as we made our way toward a haunted house called the Dungeon of Terror. It was in the old Jaws queue, and I remember there was this part with creepy mannequin lady trapped inside the little cage hanging above us. She screamed and she shook the cage, and I just remember it was really disturbing. Then as we turned a corner, I noticed out over a pond inside the queue a glimpse of someone standing in a non-decorated area of the line. It didn't really seem like the figure was part of the decor of the attraction. It just seemed to be standing over there on its own. And as we approached closer, I realized that it was some marionette puppet that I had seen near the lake earlier. I guess it noticed me too at that point because it started pretending to open and close its mouth with its hand, like it would be a puppet's mouth. Then he pulled up its index finger, brought it down his throat like it was slitting it. That was pretty much it for me. Terrified, I turned back and told my mom, but she looked over at the man that already vanished into darkness. I said I wanted to leave, that I was too scared, but she said that she that was just an employee getting a little too into character, and that making kids afraid was the whole point of the thing in the first place. Being a little better, I forgot about it and kept walking through the rest of the house. After that house, we stopped to get some pizza from one of the outdoor carts in the park. That's when things started to get really weird. I got my pizza, and I bit into the cheese and I noticed there was a little piece of paper underneath it. Totally freaked out, I pulled the paper out, and to my horror, it was a doodle of a boy. There were X's over his eyes, and his arms were lifted over his head with marionette strings attached to its hands. Then I noticed there was a small sketch of Fuzzy, the bear's face, on my shirt that I realized this picture was me. I don't remember ever being that frightened before and I showed it to my mom and she was very unhappy. She thought I was just another employee playing a trick on me. We immediately walked back to the cart but there was no one at it. The employee had just gotten up and left all the food behind. My sister then went to tell us that she had heard about people working at these parks picking on young kids to mess with throughout the night. This was really not all that out of the ordinary. My mom didn't care about this though and she wanted to put a real complaint at the main guest service window at the front. So we made the epic walk back to the front of the park and over the guest service window. But oddly enough, there was no one to be seen anywhere. At that point she was furious and she sat on the curb for a bit. While she cooled down, I got up the second and looked around just to see if I could help out and notice that one of the ticket booths still had its lights on. This was definitely weird because no one had been buying tickets for a while. I didn't say anything to my mom about it because I just had a weird feeling. Then we contemplated leaving the park. We already paid for the tickets and since it didn't look like we were going to get a refund, we figured we could just stay for one of the shows maybe before we headed out. We ended up going to a psycho show, which I really didn't have a problem because there were other people in the show, so at least it made us feel a little less alone. Once we got halfway through the show, though, one of the stage managers came out of the stage and whispered something into Norman Bates' ears. He looked at the manager like he had seen a ghost and immediately walked backstage. Then the stage manager looked out at the audience, came out of the stage and told everyone the park would be closing and that everyone needed to leave immediately. After that announcement, I could tell that my mom was finally shaking up. But at least at that point, we were guided out by security 
there's a large group of people around us. However, no matter how many employees we asked, I was going none of them would tell us anything except that the park was just closing, and that we could not give any information out. We finally got into the car, started heading back home, but as we were pulling out of the parking lot, I saw the marionette puppet again walking down one of the rows of the cars, just staring at us. I woke the next day to my mom telling me that the park was on the news, and apparently there had been five park employees murdered that night and four children that had gone missing. Bodies had been found in bushes, the guest service office, one at the pizza carts, and one in the ticket booth at the front of the park. Police had no leads as to who the killer was, but one of the pieces of evidence that I had found inside the ticket booth at the end of the night, it was a marionette puppet with a childlike sketch of Fozzie the Bear, rubber banded to his chest. Last Messages by Reddit user Tatsuya. I love you, Mom. I can hear footsteps on the stairs. I think he's outside my room. I hear sirens, but they're far away. I'm, I'm hiding in the closet. I hope he didn't hear me. Hang on. I heard something downstairs. The cops are already here looking for him. They'll catch him. Don't worry, Mom. I'm safe. I love you. The cops said he's some escaped serial killer and he's been breaking into homes around the area. Yes, Mom. It's on the news now. <laughs> I'll keep my doors locked. Messages are displayed in chronological order, with most recent at the top. Yes, Mom, it's on the news now. I'll keep my doors locked. The cops said he's some escaped serial killer and he's been breaking into homes around the area. Don't worry, Mom. I'm safe. I love you. The cops are already here looking for him. They'll catch him. Hang on. I heard something downstairs. I'm hiding in the closet. I hope he didn't hear me. I hear sirens, but they're far away. I can hear footsteps on the stairs. I think he's outside my room. I love you, Mom. <laughs> 